welcome once again to Radio Morpork, the podcast where we discuss, rate, review, analyze all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books in chronological order. I am Colm and I'm joined as ever by Stephen Hill. And we are going to talk about Feet of Clay this week, the third book in the City Watch subseries. Do you ever think we shouldn't have done it in chronological order and do it like, you know, in order of colour or something like that? Um... Sorry, that's completely off topic. Don't mind me. No, I can't. I, you know, I don't know why that entirely logical and uh, obvious idea didn't occur to me when I was coming up with this podcast. Should have done it backwards. Maybe because I tend not to prioritise colour in the same way you do. Oh, well, I don't see colour now. Yeah. Made reading The Colour of Magic very, like, you know, anticlimactic. Tiring. <laughs> you see a kind of greeny, purpley... Uh, Brownish green, I think, isn't yeah. it described as? Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Feet of Clay today, um, which, side note, uh, my brother described as his favourite Terry Pratchett book. I didn't tell you that before. Oh, wow. So uh, I was very excited to come back to it. And we should have had him on, but he had some, like, some bullshit excuse about his wife being in labour. Yeah, something about that. Yeah, I'll be delighted about being on a podcast now about that. Uh, hello, new baby niece and nephew. <laughs> you're famous and you're not even in the world yet. This is like, you can you can give this podcast to your new niece or nephew in years. Yes. Come, like when you've saved a newspaper and I mean, like they're asking, why weren't you around? <laughs> I can say, well, <laughs> I had better things to be doing, kid. But anyway, um, speaking of like you know, giving life to the world, interesting themes and in feet of clay, ah! isn't it? That's a great segue. That's probably the best segue we've ever had. I think in a Discworld book. Absolutely. I may yes. thank my brother for. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I realize I've been like you know we dropped the odd swear word, but if you go into any further detail, I think we'll have to upgrade this podcast to PG thirteen or so. Let's just Absolutely. let's just refresh everyone's memory about the plot of Feet of Clay, and then we'll get into discussing it in detail. That seems like a very good plan. I'll recite the plot summary, if I may. Work away. So, a cabal of Ankh Morpork's guild leaders seek to gradually depose the patrician, replacing him with Nobby Nobs as the new king and rule the city through him. They order Meshuggah, a golem king newly made by other golems, to fabricate poison candles and have them delivered to the palace. But the golem king goes mad, its mind overloaded with all the wishes and propositions of the golem community, and starts killing people. At this point, the city watch steps in, trying to solve the murders and Lord Veterinary's poisoning. With the assistance of their new forensics dwarf, Cheery Littlebottom, Commander Vimes and Captain Carrot unravel the mystery. Carrot and Dorfel, one of the golems, fight and defeat the golem king at the candlestick factory. Afterwards, Vimes confronts the city's chief herald, a vampire named Dragon, who instigated the whole affair. Dorfel arrests him, despite tenuous evidence, and Vimes burns down all the herald's records of the nobility as a sort of punishment. In the end, Veterinary has recovered completely, Dorfel is sworn in as a watchman, and Vimes gets a pay rise and a new dartboard for the watch house. Watch house. So, that's the story in a nutshell, and I suppose we should open the same way that we always open. Colin, what did you think of this book? Well, you know, this is this is the third watch book, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the third watch book. That's about someone trying to get rid of the patrician and um, put the king in charge, mm-hmm. um, uh, put a king in charge. And I said before that 
I think it's a strength and a weakness of Pratchett that he has this tendency to revisit plots and ideas. Mm. Like he thinks he can mine more out of them. And here, I think this is definitely a strength. This feels very much like in the same way that Lords and Ladies built on the previous two uh, witch books to kind of uh, to basically like you know make a kind of general improvement and concentration of those teams and better use characters. This is what this does. Like I think this is. Um, uh, terrific, like mm. really terrific. Considering, like you're reading it and thinking, oh, someone's trying to get rid of an area, get a get a king again, and yet it just sweeps you along. It's mm. it's got the like the mystery plot to it is really good. I don't think I I can't imagine many people would have got it first time around reading it. The golem subplot is really good. I don't think there is a watch book or probably a book in a disc world that gives this really rich uh diverse cast of characters so much to do you know Vimes mm. has something to do Carl has something to do Angu has something to do Cheery has something to do Colin has something to do Nobby has something to do mm. uh like you know Detritus Dorful uh what's your man like like we mad art we does, mad art does he become like a watchman later or is that another gnome uh I it's I, I was asking myself the same question while I was doing it. I imagine he must do if it's in both of our heads but um well, personally not. We'll find out anyway. Yeah, Jingle, but, um, sure. but yeah, but they they all have they all have things to do, and it's so tight and exciting in that way. And seeing all those plot lines interact and mm. run alongside one another just makes it for so it makes for such an enjoyable, uh, engaging read. If I can interject just for a second there, yeah, one thing that you point uh, point out there, I've always felt that uh, Corporal or Corporal Colon was kind of a weak character. Whoa. Sergeant Colon. Sergeant Colon, beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, I always felt he was a bit of a weak ca- character in the um, Discworld series. I mean, I always kind of characterized him as uh, lethargic vibes. Like you know, he doesn't re- like it. He doesn't. Re- I have always felt he doesn't really have many strong characteristics other than fat. You know, <laughs> that's always just the way that I remember. But he really comes into his own here. He's given a lot to do in this book, and uh, it's probably one definitely one of the strengths that fleshes out the characters that need to be fleshed out like whereas the likes of carrot even though he's given a lot to do he's actually given much less focus in this one than in previous books and that's fine because carrot carrot has already had a lot of focus in the previous two so the balance is particularly in terms of focus it's very well balanced in this one it's a very moody book it's like a very atmospheric almost it's almost like a noir in a way for a lot of it um the use of fog in mm-hmm. the book is exceptional. I think it's a great uh, motif that runs through. It. Like the fact that it clears up once, like the mystery is solved. You know, showing that like, oh, nobody can see what's what and that sort of thing. It's yeah. it's great. It's really a um, brilliant use of uh, symbolism there. Well, when you sum it up, like it seems kind of very trite, pathetic fallacy. Like, oh, they're solving a mystery and it's foggy. But again, it comes back to that, like how. It, you had the heat wave in Men at Arms un- kind of serving to underline the rising tensions between mm. the city's ethnic groups. Um, it, it just does make for such a wonderful atmosphere. You know, you can Absolutely. read, you have this picture in your head of Vimes and Carrot and Angua going around these foggy streets and these huge red-eyed golems looming out at distance. Um, and again, create, like, I think Morpork's are good at uh, depicting a city. And I, I talked in our Men at Arms episode about how, like, the weather is one of those events that brings a city kind of a community of the city together because it's something everyone experiences at once. Mm. Some, you know, you can strike up a conversation with a stranger about it. We have the, the, the fog being that here. 
Mm. And uh, just one of my favourite scenes, actually, which um, is made, uh, uh, it's allowed to happen because of the fog, is uh, that moment where Vimes is walking across the bridge Mm -hmm. and he realises something's wrong, but it takes him a few minutes to realise what it is and it's actually that the golem is standing on the bridge and, like, uh, pretending to be a statue. Um, Really good scene. Very, very tense. Um, Also, I I felt, is this the first time where he uses the boots to kind of... um, feel out where he is in the city. I felt that was something that had been done before, um, but I could be wrong. I think it is, but he has the thing in Men in Arms with the boots theory of economics. Oh, about, right, yeah. Yeah, which funnily enough, where he talks about like a poor man's boots wearing out quicker, and obviously he yeah, yeah. wants ones that wear out. Um, I thought they'd done a good job, too, uh, in that you have Garrett's guards, he's just like run down, you know, down on his luck, uh, copper... Men at Arms, he's looking to retirement as sort of, you know, moody and unsure about it. And here, it's he's in this new position. He's head of this, you know, uh, much bigger, much more well-resourced watch. He's kind of in the nobility through marriage. And you see him coping with that here, like with just fending off the assassins at the start. Mm. And like uh, talking about how he, he's annoyed at the idea of the world being divided into the shaved and the shavers when mm. he won't let his butler shave him. Very good bit there. Um, yeah, yeah. So him kind of trying to keep a handle uh, on the, the watch and keep this day of like, keep dark, keep this day, keep this um, idea of like, every, you know, everyday policing that he isn't going to be some like hands off bureaucrat sitting in his mansion somewhere. <laughs> but that being sort of a struggle because the very nature of his role has gone to divide him from the rest of them anyway. You know? Exactly, yeah. What was it he describes himself as uh, too posh to be a copper, but, uh, or what was it, too posh to be, uh, yeah, too posh to be a copper, but too much of a copper to be a knob or something like that? Or I can't remember that. Some, sense, something like sense, that, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent about what a great, well-written character Vimes is, but like, there's so many little aspects there that just make him so readable. Like, you just really, you never really want to spend much time away from Vimes because he's so well-written. And that point where he, um, where he revisits uh, Cockbill Street, yeah, is a particularly good bit, and it shows. It's always considering what like a salty old dog Vimes is. It's always a wonderful moment when you get to his empathy. Where he like really shows like you know kindness to other mm. people, and it it always invariably seems to come out when he's dealing with the poor. Yeah. So like you know he's a re- he's a real soldier for like the people, like just like uh, you know Carrot always says, which it's ironic that like you know he always uh, views Carrot as this like naive gentleman, but he kind of he is the person that Carrot looks up to because he is what Carrot describes, you know, as, like, you know, that man of the city, that whole thing. Yeah, well, like, there's a nice thing that never gets said where, like, um, Angua thinks at one point, like, Carrot says, we've got to speak for the people, or we've got to uh, speak for the voiceless or speak for the people who can't speak for themselves. Hmm. And Angua thinks, like, Vimes put the words in your head, like, Carrot's his golem. Yeah. And, like, Carrot clearly looks up to him so much and models himself after in many ways, and yet, like, Vimes would think of Carrot as a much better person than he is. Absolutely, And that yeah. never, I like how that never gets said, like, you never have this moment of reconciliation where, like, oh, Vimes, you might be feeling bad and bitter, but actually, you know, look how much Carrot respects you. Mm. You know, you never, like, you all, you see that kind of, um, how would you put it, like, uh, like at two degrees, uh, at a degree of separation where people see Carrot 
and see the inf- other people like Angua or Colin or someone see Carrot and see the influence Vimes had on them. Mm. And then you have Vimes later thinking about how great Carrot is. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I love that Cockbill Street bit. It's, it's excellent. And I, it came up when we talked about interesting times and I said I, I get really annoyed at the idea that he seemed to be suggesting with Brinsman's yeah, conversation with the farmer of like, oh, look, if the people themselves don't want to... Um, you know, don't want to change the system, you have no right changing it for them. And my point was, like, it's sort of a, what you call, like, a hegemony, where the, you know, the people in power have been able to shape the uh, people's idea of what is possible and what's not, mm. so that the people at the bottom rung aren't going to be able to conceive of a different way of doing things. And mm. so, and it's weird coming so soon after interesting times, because you see that perfectly illustrated here, yeah. where he goes to Cockbill Street and he thinks about how, like, Rules aren't for the rich who like just you know flaunt them with their money, and they aren't for criminals who just disobey them. They're for people in Cockbill Street who just you know run themselves into poverty while trying to pathetically keep up appearances to like yeah. to maintain some weird, vaguely but very strongly held concept of pride and what people should do, and mm. how it just the whole thing just serves to hold them in place, like to keep them down, to keep them. Uh, yeah, just like keep them at on the, you know, on 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 the poverty line. Um, yeah, it's, what was it line he says that um they're so poor that they don't even know they're poor. Yeah, like and uh, I think Vimes actually he has a great little analogy that I think sums it up really well. Is where you might have not have any food in the table, but you'll always have a bar of soap to make yeah. sure that like you can keep yourself clean. Like that'll just that's just like an impossibility to have food and not have the soap, which I think is exquisitely like well put <laughs> absolutely and and a bit too when he t- thinks about how they always would put money by for a funeral no matter what was like no yeah matter what, like happened there a lot of like the idea that you would have some kind of shoddy funeral wouldn't uh like would be anathema to them I, I think it's so good too because then he you see through him about like as well that like his initial reaction is that a kind of rage and frustration at both how unfair things are for these people but how almost self-inflicted it is to a certain extent um or at least self-regulated but you see through him that like it's you know these people aren't dismissed as idiots or dupes or you know he's so uh hurt when the what mrs easy and the, the baby die and he, when he that bit when um I, I don't I, I still don't know if it was a bit too on the nose that carrot doesn't know who they are and the thing makes a point of like the carrot knows everyone in the city and it's yeah you know i don't know whether it's a bit too on the nose saying like oh look cockbell street people are so beaten down and you know like kind of below the poverty line below the kind of notice of city that even carrot doesn't know but anyway leaving that aside that, that landed just the way that landed for me i thought that was well done but that's just me okay yeah well I'm, I'm sort of in two minds mm. but i about like i about think it's really good and yeah it, it it's kind of like where I can see the how would you put it like I see the seams yeah you, I get you, you can, yeah like I can kind of it, you uh, know why it was there yeah it didn't yeah, feel exactly. it, yeah yeah but but I love when when the description Vimes gives of who Mrs Easy was the carrot and it's all these really mundanely heroic things that kind mm. of very like you know poor working underclass people do to raise families about like trying to make things work on so little money and kind of you know um you would think of them as having like they would be characterized as having some oh, she's just a, whatever, a cleaning lady or a, you know, a this, but they're actually doing all these other jobs that are not being paid for, like mending mm. clothes and doing these different things around the community and how all of that goes um, unnoticed. And, like, that shows that he really does have this empathy and compassion with them, you know, that he mm. isn't kind of, 
like he to a certain extent he's looking at them from the outside in because he's wholly separated from their world now where yeah. he is but he can still empathize he's just thinking who are these Egypts who are like you know obeying these rules that are aren't serving them at all he's yeah. like he knows kind of why they're, why they're doing that and the bits where he talks to Mildred the maid and feels so guilty and awkward about the fact that she thinks he's questioning her about some wrongdoing yeah and he's trying to make it as easy as possible but he uh, he's also like desperate like he, he he's feeling that he's so close to the answer and just what what is it like there's something about like um uh like oh we've got all these answers piling up now we just need to ask the right questions That's, yeah 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 um so he, he's caught between these two things where he just like re, you know wants to grab her and just grill her because he knows he's going to find out the solution to this whole mystery and yet is conscious of how guilty she's feeling first of like that like wonderfully awkward and pathetic bit where she thinks she's going to be arrested for like stealing candles <laughs> and food from like scraps of food from the kitchens and but then even then how like Ultimately, she probably then finds out through him that she was sort of uh, responsible for her grandmother and uh, baby brother dying, even if she couldn't have possibly known by bringing home the poison candles. And there's mm. sort of no way for him to keep that from her because he's also just got to get that answer out and um, establish that the candles were poisoned so he can you know, resolve the, the rest of the mystery and bring the um, perpetrators to justice. But... It's it's just really awkward as well because you can see her kind of crumbling and realizing, mm. oh no, what have I done? Um, yeah, and you know it's funny that like um, the way I always I always like get a sense that uh, Vimes weirdly enough he isn't that you know he, you know the way how I was saying that he's very um, emphatic with uh, you know the likes of the lower classes mm-hmm. in. Um, and more pork, but he never seems really upset about the unfairness. Like he almost takes kind of a certain pride in that, like, yeah, they were really poor, like good down to earth people. But it's never like, and it should be different. It's just that, like, no, but these are just good people, and that's that. So it's interesting that he has this, um, he has this view, uh, like, of these people, and like he's infuriated if there's any wrongdoing of it. But he doesn't actually want, well. This is debatable, but it doesn't seem like he wants any momentous change to happen. Yeah, I don't think... I think he can, like... He can't imagine his role in doing that. Like, he very yeah. much sees his role as a as a watchman, as, like, reactive rather than proactive. Like, crimes happen and he stops them, you know? Right yeah, on. but the actual job of, yeah, like, the, running the, the city like, and all of... that sort of thing, it's not for him. Like, Which is why he, you know, is so repelled when he's, like, uh, becomes... The the duke he's a duke isn't he yeah, yeah, yeah a duke and he's just like repelled by the whole idea like the more complex situations he finds himself in like the more political situations he just can't deal with it. all he knows is that somebody runs you have to chase after him and that's pretty much as far as his education yeah. goes I, I think it's an interesting limitation for the character because it's like he can I think like it, it will be a very different uh, watch series if he you know taught okay Cockbell Street all these like crimes they shouldn't be happening what can I do to change yeah. it rather than stop it happening and you know kind of essentially almost like either like ran against the gills or veterinary for like advocating change and things like that but like I, I think it's I, I think it's just like it's interesting that like you know he doesn't that there are sort of limits to his abilities and his scope mm. of the problem you know exactly like he stops crimes during or after they've happened but like he never goes so far as to think of how do we prevent crimes from happening. Well, in in some cases, maybe, but like they're never really big picture ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes his relationship with Vetinari really, really interesting. 
because um, what's that? Like? One of the um, heads of the guilds says that uh, th- they're basically questioning the idea of maybe Vimes was poisoning veterinary. Uh, yeah. Um, because someone was saying, yeah, he, Vimes uh, did always say that if anyone was going to kill him, he'd want it to be him. And it's, it's so odd, the dynamic. Anytime that you see Veterinary and, uh, Vimes in the same room, for one thing, the dialogue is so stilted, obviously, because, like, Vimes is, like, addressing a superior. But, like, there is an odd degree of respect there, but you also do very much get the sense that he strongly dislikes the patrician. But it is kind of a hate-slash-awe situation, mm-hmm. I think, because I think he's aware of everything the patrician does, and I think he just knows it's outside his scope. And, like, a big lesson that is kind of learned at the end of this, like, very harshly for the guild leaders, is that it's much better for Veterinary to be alive than dead, because yeah. even, no matter how you feel about him, like, the work he does vastly outweighs, like, any inconveniences he lays on people. Um, incidentally, I found that really interesting considering our current political climate. <laughs> well, I, I think that, the, to go back to Vimes and everything, the dislike is, you're right, it's always there and it's always restrained because he sort of, I said, like, he can see how Vimes can see all the, like, inequalities and things that are wrong around Morport, mm. but he can't really see how to solve them. So he sort of resents Veterinary for presiding over a city where all these things happen. But at the mm. same time, he, you know, when he goes in, he's usually yes, sir, no, sir, mm. and doesn't want to engage because he either doesn't see it as, as his place or can't really conceive of a way of, like, engaging with Veterinary to say, hey, why aren't you doing more for the people of Cockbill Street? Like, he wouldn't know what veterinary should be doing for them he's just annoyed that he knows something should be done for exactly them. yeah but, yeah uh, although this this brings me to an interesting point with veterinary where at the end of this you realize that he knew all along how it was being done um, and presumably he's kind of like uh, stringing everyone along in the idea of like okay vimes and the watch are going to uncover this mystery and they're going to scare the gills and the people behind it into not doing anything again and mm. that will restore stability um rather than if he discovered it he'd presumably have to like have a lot of them killed and things like that for you know appearances sake of yeah you know i found that there's been attempt in my life you know he couldn't just get away with slapping them on the wrist that would encourage him to do it more and i love that image too at the end of them vimes going into the chamber the rats chamber without having the conspiracy and embedding the axe in the table yeah <laughs> and then veterinary wants to leave it there but by veterinary knowing all along how he's been poisoned he is tacitly responsible for mrs easy and uh little william is it the, the uh oh i the, can't the baby yeah, yeah dying because like you know he if vimes and the rest of them had known it was the candles earlier vimes like knows knows that knows enough of the habits of servants that they would take things like candles home like you know he'd be kind of stumbles on so if he had like the moment he knows he knew if it had been earlier he would have like said okay not like no one no one could take any of the candles out um so veterinary either knows this and writes it off like doesn't care you know thinks like oh well well servants take them home that's their bad luck or they're so beneath his notice that he doesn't even it doesn't even factor into his planning mm. which i mean Vimes's dislike of him might be restrained. I doubt it would be too restrained if he realised that veterinary knew and didn't do anything about it when it resulted in two people's deaths. I mean, you see that bit when uh, 
Carol and I knew I have what's your man's name the the candle guy Mr. Carry backed up and oh yeah yeah and yeah uh, Carry says oh we haven't killed anyone and Carrie says no two people have died and he goes who he says oh like Mrs. Easy and Willie were they important and Carrot says oh you know you're very lucky because if Mr. <laughs> yeah. Rhymes had been there when uh, that yeah, would have been the end of yeah, you yeah and, and it's the same when the dragon says like oh who are they when when Vimes uh, tells him he's arresting him for the murder of um of, of Mrs. Easy and her grandson so I mean if he had found out that uh veterinary's veterinary had known that and or like had known the method of poisoning and was just you know whatever lax mm. about it I think you know whatever uh there would have been <laughs> would, I would have been hell to pay that's why I think um veterinary is like the best uh a parody of a politician that I can possibly imagine because you know it's it, that that is the way politicians would think I'd imagine like I mean, on the one hand yes they like his entire plan was basically to keep the guild leaders in line and make sure they don't try anything like that again because in like let's let's give uh, veterinary the benefit of the doubt and say that um, he had the interest of the entire city in mind if he did die then the city would pro- pretty much fall apart without his organization skills and that sort of thing so it is for if you look at it in that sense it is for the greater good that you know uh this had to happen now obviously i'm sure well not obviously but i doubt that he said okay well that's a necessary fact a sacrifice it's probably just like an oversight or something that he thought well can't be helped must be done and that's just the way politicians think yeah, yeah, but I I think that's interesting too because that's never the way Vimes would think, you know. Yeah, like exactly. He wouldn't. That's not an oversight he'd make. And in the same way, if he has his limitations of like not being able to see the big picture, big picture, big picture <laughs> solutions that would change things for things like mm. Tropical Street, Veterinary sees the big picture and a lot of intricate details, but occasionally misses some human stuff like that. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what makes Vimes like such an engaging character to read because we engage with him on an emotional level. Whereas the patrician, like, I mean, even though he is, uh, he's fun to read about in the third person, but I can't really imagine him for any great period of time in the first person because he'd be so cold and distant. But he works as this cold figurehead of, like, calculating scrutiny, Mm -hmm. who, you know, uh, who is examining things in this, like, highly politicized and, you know, tactful manner. Um, Yeah, it is interesting that, like, it's 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 a troublesome a- aspect of the book but i don't think it's a flaw if that makes sense yeah. so probably uh to spell out my favorite vimes bit in this whole book is when the kill leaders try to frame him for veterinary for veterinary poisoning yes and show up uh and, and the way that the narrative teases it where he discovers the bottle of whiskey under his desk and then we cut to someone else and when he gets back he seems to have been passed out and I, I think there's a few like you get to a few characters point of views in between and at one point one dimension is like oh I don't know Captain Carrot's out and Commander Vimes isn't like answering in his office and mm. you know uh, you're not, your attention isn't really drawn to it and then they come in and that's it you can you can go to little groups for alcohol dependency, but you can't go to one where you can stand up and say my name's Sam and I'm a suspicious bastard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's actually a wonderful little character moment in that as well, where, um, 
what was it Revive says when he finds out whoever it was that uh, was guilty of all these crimes on top of the list is making a police officer pour out an entire bottle of bear hugger single malt whiskey yeah. which is like something that no man should ever have to do and like it's it's a throwaway comment but I actually think it speaks very much to like the kind of pain that he's going through and it's like because like it's 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 one thing that like um it doesn't define his character but it is a really big part of his personality that is he is a recovering alcoholic yeah and it's you know it's it's really interesting that like this like volumes is a man who is constantly struggling with his inner demons and like alcoholism is a really neat way of kind of embodying that in a more uh, tangible way for people than people to realize like we had something similar in a at the end of Men at Arms where he has the gun mm-hmm. and he's really, really tempted to use it. And you can see, oh, here's like Vine struggling with like what it's going to be like if he becomes basically the criminal, but he has it in his head that basically he'll become old Stoneface in a way. Yeah. Because uh, his ancestor in this book, it's revealed that he was the one who, uh, well, I think it's alluded to, but it's given more, it's elaborated on in this one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's mentioned it before, but it's, yeah, it's, we actually hear um, what it was, uh, Stoneface, like all the details of how he uh, beheaded the Mad King. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because uh, in many ways, the way he describes Stoneface in this, Vime seems to hold him up in high regard and think that he did the right thing. And like he, he very much stands by the fact that like he beheaded somebody who was like a monster. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, there's also a kind of sense that he's trying not to become him. Like, he doesn't want to become this person who's, like, power mad, but, you know, he wants to maintain the morals, but not the, uh, I don't know, the, he, he wants to maintain the morals, but also work within the law, I suppose. Um, I, I think he, he likes it because he, he sort of shows that no one is above the law when he, mm. you know, like, we, we talked about men arms of Vimes hating kings, and what was the king's assassins and the undead, <laughs> over here to speculate him because he sees them as all... A, above the law or beyond law in some way um, and, and I mean you see it coming through so it's thing with King so wonderfully here when Nobby is scared to uh, take up the kingship that's mm. been trust on him because of what Vimes would say but the all stone face thing okay I, I knew we are going to come to this and this is my big sticking point about this well no it's not my big sticking point about this book because it's a relatively minor part of it, the book and it's not even direct but it irks me all the same Old Stoneface Vimes is a very, very clear parallel with Oliver Cromwell, right? Mm-hmm. They talk about him, like about how he um, he, how he, he, he killed the king. Um, Oliver Cromwell didn't actually uh, chop Charles I's head off, but like he, you know, he's the guy who kind of put him up on trial when that was sort of unthinkable. Um, he refers to Vimes, Old Stoneface Vimes as iron heads and Cromwell's troops are round heads. He talks about having warts and Cromwell famously has to be painted warts and all. And... And he's kind of seen as like a kind of heroic figure by Vimes. I mean, as you said, there is a bit of reticence of you get the feeling that maybe he he w- could never let himself go quite as far as Stoneface Vimes did. Mm. But ultimately, like he's seen as this is a good guy. And kind of by the rest of the narrative as well. I think at the end of Jingo, doesn't like like veterinary promises to a diss as the thing where Vimes goes to Dragon about the Vimes coat of arms and Dragon's has been banned ever since old Stoneface. Yeah. And I, I think, think I think Veterinary Trenton's are it says about reviving it and doing mm. some like thing on uh, old Stoneface the end Jingo. And that just sits very ill with me because he's such an obvious Cromwell parallel. And mm. okay, I'm saying this because I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK. Um <laughs> 
And I know at the moment they're doing this. Strap yourself uh, in, yeah, guys. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far into it, but like, there's been uh, recent political events have really um, illustrated again the sort of difference in like point of view between Irish and um, particularly English people, like British in general, about Anglo-Irish history. Um, and maybe that, like, I suppose in our view, they don't know as much about it as they should. You saw that infamous Channel 4 video where yes, the, all the, border, the people on the street North, couldn't draw yeah. the, the Northern Irish border. Yeah. Um, and Oliver Cromwell, his statue is outside the House of Parliament. When they done that, 100 Greatest Britain's poll at the start of 21st century, he was in the top 10. Mm. Um, he's, like, and, and this also sits kind of weirdly alongside that, like, a, the monarchy's still quite popular and his sort of main thing he's known for is getting rid of the king briefly. But in any case... Um, like Oliver Cromwell, like essentially, like all but like attempted, like you know, almost genocide in Ireland. Like he was, you know, like driving people to one side of the country, taking their land, murdering people. Uh, the mayor of Arklow beaten to death with his own wooden leg. You know, he had <laughs> he had uh, like towns and cities sacked and uh, like you know, like burned. Like basically considered the the Irish people like subhuman because of their you know. Uh, malignant Catholic religion that had seen them uh, make a covenant with the devil and allowed his troops just kind of get them carte blanche to commit all amounts of atrocities on it. And even within within England, right, within uh, the, the English Civil War was initially a bunch of, uh, like a load of different disparate factions united against Charles I, uh, who they saw as like, you know, was throwing his weight around and um, going beyond the limit of his powers. And these included groups like like I think it's like the diggers or the levellers who are like proto socialists and just wanted like uh wanted essentially like a living wage and universal suffrage and things like that. And after day one against Charles Force, the like next part of the English Civil War was Cromwell crushing all of those other groups and instituting what's essentially a theocracy where he banned Christmas and he banned mm-hmm. dancing and he banned like all manner of things and just uh, basically created like the, the you know the land of no crack whatsoever mm, um, and then you know after all like the, any credit he's giving for getting rid of a like a king like a tyrant like Charles the First to well what right does Charles the First have to rule over ever and he's not elected and just because of who his dad was then Cromwell becomes a uh, like a dictator who has more power than Charles the First did who sleeps in the king's house who when he dies his own son replaces him <laughs> you know like he's just uh, the he, it kind of baffles me how he's like he, uh, continued to be like held in high regard in some how would you put it like like respectable circles. It's not like how some people continue to venerate Hitler or Stalin or Mao or someone mm. like like that when when like the people who venerate them uh, tend to be either of really extreme ideologies or from uh, you know or from kind of backgrounds where they've grown up. Um, I don't know, reading some really skewed version of these people's history at schools like. Cromwell just seems to occupy this weird, nebulous, like, oh, you know, he done some bad and he done some good <laughs> position in sort of mainstream British thought. It's... That feels really weird when I see it leaking through with, like, like Pratchett-seeming position themselves there. And I don't want to, like, seem like I'm throwing my toys out of pram because, oh, my God, this author, like, has a different view on history than I do. It's... A lot of the time, that's really interesting to read about when you have someone who does follow your views. But... I, I just can't help but read it and feel like, oh, this isn't just a view I disagree with. This is like a, a view just born out of this, to me, what feels like a, like a badly researched or, you know, wrong view of this historical yeah, like character. Like, it isn't like, like a, 
how would you put it? It isn't like, I, I don't feel like, you know, Pratchett and I are reading the same things about Cromwell and then arriving at different points of view. I just feel like he's he hasn't heard the, the same mm. stuff I have. And it, it just frustrates me because, again, we're, you know, in the current climate, we see this difference of... Uh, views of Anglo-Irish history and of what is prioritised and what is taught about those those events in, in Britain and Ireland. We, we, we see it now. And just seeing it here annoys me because everything else about this book is so like wonderfully compassionate and complex and this veneration of this like theocratic dictator just because he happened to kill a king mm. and that, you know, that's a good thing to me, sits completely at odds with all that. But sorry, I'll, I'll get off my political soapbox, but I just, I couldn't let it lie because it's always stuck out for me as, you know, well, I, like, I kind of ranted a bit politically with interesting times, but again, I see that as more of like, that's just like, that's a difference of opinion that like, for me, whatever, like I, you know, I don't agree with it and I don't feel that uh, the alternative view is presented well enough and it like, it hinders the book a little for me, but does, you know, does, doesn't really irk me to disagree where I, uh, yeah, it just sits very wrong. It kind of feels like I sort of feel like it's like the uh, debate they're having in the U.S. now with all of the monuments to people like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson yeah. Davis and all these Confederates people, where you have this generation, uh, generations of people in the South who've just grown up thinking, "Oh, these guys were just stand-up people who stood up for our culture," and uh, you know, "Ah, oh, well, maybe they owned a few slaves, but whatever," you know. And and then another side saying, "I saw a video there about uh, someone from the South um, saying." Uh, what was it? His great grandfather uh, fought for the South, and you know when he sees statues like this, it reminds him that there's a little bit of a rebel in me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bizarre. It's it's uh, if you don't mind me, I just want to interject oh, and address no, look, that look, now well, because I mean, take me off this because I'm sure like it's like half I, like half the listeners will get for this will tune out at that point. When this is uh, like no, that you you're, the point you're making is perfectly valid, but. I actually came at it from a different angle, and I think it actually meets your point head-on, which is really interesting, in that I found that a theme that ran through the, almost the entire uh, book, and I think he's making a really strong point of, and it'll be interesting if he takes this into account, is just the whole idea of ignorance, and to a certain degree how like ignorance seems to stem from class. Um, so, And, you know, a lot of this is all down to like political exposure and that sort of thing. Like, for example... Perfect example is when uh, Nobby is like hobnobbing with all the the guild leaders, and as you said, um, they want him to be king, and all he can think of is how Vimes <laughs> yeah. like will go that. absolutely spare. You know, he he'll he'll kill me yeah. like if for trying to be king. He says, "Yes, but you'll be king. You'll be outrank him." He says, "Oh God, no! He'd kill me. He'd kill me if I was king." You know, he can't conceive it because like he's in his little bubble. You know, which is very much you can almost put like the guards and watchmen themselves in the class of their own because like they all work. I mean, they have their own pub and everything, you know, yeah, like they yeah. really are a class of their own, but this feeds into so many other characters like in the, the book itself. Like look at we mad Arthur, you know, the way his entire economy and view of the world is completely different. Yeah, I really like that. And one. not only that, like there's a point where, um, when Colon is hanging off the edge of the building and he says, uh, why don't you just jump? Just jumps, yeah. Well, I can jump off here and it won't hurt me at all because I'm normal sized, yeah. and that's that's the thing because he views the way he is as normal, that's just his world, and that's why you know he'll accept something like a dollar because, as he said, oh, I can buy like a loaf of bread and I can use it for a house and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the whole idea that you know his view of the world is wrong, but to him. 
there's nobody uh, who can tell him. I mean, it isn't really wrong. It works for him. Exactly, but like you know, if, if you look at like Colon, right? If he said like, "Oh, I only gave him a dollar," he's not wrong in thinking that's a very small amount of money. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, we mad Arthur isn't wrong in thinking that's a huge amount of money. You know, yeah. they're both right. But it's and I'm and I'm not saying that like you know people are right to you know glorify Oliver Cromwell or anything like that. But the reason I found that interesting is because I think this is one of those occasions where like Vimes is very much in his own bubble as well. You know, because he is he's living in a certain degree of ignorance as well. Because um, admittedly, yeah, he's like. Yeah, he was a mad king and he needed to be put down. But we've already discussed how he doesn't view the bigger picture and like Yeah. So yeah, that's a, I mean that's that's a point and yeah, yeah, you're right. Like yeah, Vimes does have his own limitations. And I was about to say I mean what I noticed about it is like no one no one else ever uh, you know, you don't ever hear any alternative viewpoint expressed in the story other than one that Vimes is kicking against that seems to be wrong of just like uh, very blinkered idea of oh he killed the king ergo he must be bad kings are great you know like mm. that's the alternative view that's supplied yeah um, but having said that maybe this is a case where i mean maybe I'm, I'm i'm getting too like sucked into the kind of like um what i consider the sort of misinformed veneration of cromwell that some english people have and maybe pratchett is expecting his reader to be like oh why does vimes like this Cromwell XP so much, mm. you know, that's actually pretty screwed up. Maybe, maybe. I just, I'm, I'm just not too sure because it never, it's never really brought up. And the fact that in, I think it's Jingo, part of Vimes' kind of reward is that this character is really yes, yeah, yeah. Now, having said all that, like, I don't want to dwell on it too, like, I had to kind of vent about it because it just, um, yeah, it's been weighing on my mind. But it is like a relatively small part of the book. Mm. And one that just kind of more serves to, for Vimes to uh, like explore both the uh, people's the the allure of this idea of kings, which which comes up again here and is uh, explored pretty well, and the uh, um I suppose the what you call like the narrative, the process of like kind of making dominant historical narratives where something's just established as like, this person was the good guy and this was the bad guy in history and yeah. you, it's very difficult to change that once it's been established. Yeah, yeah. And then a the whole class thing of, you know, how people can be removed from that system. Uh, like, so, you know, I don't want to, like the, like, the, like, the Cromwell parallels don't, like, ruin the book or anything for me. They just, and can I just say, with me. Can I just say, say that, like, I'm not saying that, like, that's definitely what the situation is. I just find it a little bit ironic that, uh, because this is a theme that I think resonates throughout the book, that, in a way, I think Terry Pratchett himself is suffering from the same delusions that many of the characters have, but it's just really interesting that he's in a way written himself like a get out of jail free clause. He's he's inadvertently like fashioned a safety net without even knowing he's over a cliff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like um, <laughs> that um it's just it's it's it, it, in a way that you could say that like uh yeah, old Vimes is like, you know, totally off kilter and like he's he's has the completely wrong opinion. You could argue that, but I don't think that's the case. I think uh Vimes is trying to get or sorry, I think Terry Pratchett was trying to get Vimes to speak for everybody, and basically he wanted everybody to get on board with this. So it's just interesting that he himself is suffering from the same delusion that he's writing about so often here. It's just, it's I just think it's really really funny. 
Um, uh, to go on to that, that bit with Nobby, uh, you mentioned where he has, we see his charisma explored. Oh, charisma. <laughs> that was yeah, a great... He's so, he's so repugnant, he's fascinating, which is great. <laughs> um, like, I, I, I love that bit, and it, it's like all the... I said all the characters get... Some of the characters get to shine here, and all of them are interwoven. Like, Colin's thing involves the kind of investigation into the golems and the candles factory, and uh, true... Nobby, we see how the conspiracy is starting to work. Um, and it is a nice thing, too, that I, I said it's the third book where we've explored to get rid of the king or get rid of Venaria, make uh, a king. That it's like even the conspirators and people are doing this who are getting savvy to how this world works, where they're thinking, yeah, everyone knows Carrot's the king, but he probably wouldn't be very good because, as Vaughn point out, he would be like an actual person who'd want to enforce justice and, yeah. you know, wouldn't be a mere puppet. Um, although Dragon says the real reason he didn't want to do it was because of uh, um, the what he would consider miscegenation between mm. Carrot and, and Angu, a human and a werewolf. But I, I like, he says that, but I, I also feel like Vimes's idea of uh, Carrot being seen as too strong-willed and too moral... I can buy that, like the other people involved in that conspiracy, that was their main reservation. Rather Absolutely, than I, I actually think that the um, the whole idea of uh, the puppies aspect of it, I think that was a bit. I, I, I don't I don't view that as like the key reason that they don't want uh, Karen on the throne at all. I just think it's a useful plot device that brings us nicely into. Um, I think it's is it the last elephant when they go to Uberwald? Fifth elephant, yeah. Fifth elephant, sorry, the last. <laughs> but um, it's it's interesting that I do feel like uh, in this book that their Terry Pratchett is building the foundations like for that book, but Jingo comes in between. Yeah, it's very odd because like the entire way through this book, we're dealing with Angua's like tearing herself apart, thinking she's going to have to leave Agmopro, she's going to go have to go back home, and ultimately she never does. It's it's. I think it's um, it'll be frustrating if I didn't know what was coming ahead because nothing seems to really come of it at all, mm-hmm. you know. But um, knowing what happens in the last, or the fifth elephant, sorry, um, I think it 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 builds the foundations of that story very nicely. Yeah, it's in the, like I I did think that last bit with Angu was sort of thinking, oh, will I stay? Like, oh, it's about a clear a sequel hook, as you could, you know. Yeah, it really, really clearly, is. Uh, more to be mined there. Um, and, and they mentioned the, the boogeyman uh, in the in the bar when her cheerier and beers. Mm. Um, I wonder if Susan was there at the same time. Godfather <laughs> come on for next one, so possibly. Uh, possibly. But um, I, like she mentions her family and her dad not being or being upset with her being in the in the guards. Mm. So yeah, it's it's definitely been uh, like there's the foundations are being laid there um but the stuff with nobby and all the um all the uh, nobles is really funny but i think it's also in a weird way quite sad where nobby's such a kind of figure of contempt and repugnance even in the other watchmen even in the guards like that he goes into the situation where people actually seem to you know be like and uh, yes. respect him and so on and they're all just putting it on and can barely hide their contempt mm. just because they want to use him and even though the situation ends hilariously and doesn't, you know, ultimately doesn't work out for for them at all, it it is sort of sad that like the, you know he has this like brief window into this world where he's um you know uh, like having a good time and uh, is respected by these people he considers kind of fancy and important and it's it's all just a it's all just a sham. Um, it is also odd though that um if you were to consider like a person like if you would consider a person not a character like Nobby in real life, 
I'm sure they would be an incredibly tragic character that you have huge sympathy for, but he never comes across that way in the entire series, as far as I can recall. Like, I mean, the worst you can ever say of him, like, is that, yeah, people, you know, they call him ugly and all that, but he always just seems to laugh it off, lights up a dog end, and that's it, and just, like, seems happy to, you know, smoke in corners and stay out of trouble. It's... It's an odd art form, but um, I suppose it's different enough because if anyone is kind of portrayed in that way, they usually are kind of mined for, you know, emotional depth, and he isn't really. Yeah, yeah, and he does have a certain, like, knowingness and, like, slyness about him. It's like Colin doesn't... Um, yeah, see the true. And talking, they're, like, up and paired together. It's like, oh, these two lazy, incompetent coppers. But he sort of has a bit more cunning about him than, than Colin does. Yeah, and yeah. He helps him get by. But the, the watch in general here... Uh, like it's it's really we're we're seeing it in full swing now. So we're seeing books going forward. It's this huge organization. Like after presumably after the events of Men in Arms, the Day Watch and the Night Watch have been amalgamated. Mm. They've got several watch houses. Suddenly we have all these other um people, all these other dwarves and trolls in the watch who you know weren't introduced to us on page and yeah. are like are there in the background the whole time. Um and it's in, it just makes for like, the whole thing quite like. Uh, it helps move it forward so that it doesn't feel like a retread of cards, cards or men in arms, and it also then um, makes the main characters that we focus on and even the side characters stand out a lot more because they seem quite knowing and experienced. Like seeing Angua go around with Cheery and how she really knows how things work in the town mm. is like a like wonderful implicit contrast to when she was going around with Carrot at the start of Men in Arms. Exactly, and no even idea. Detritus is this quite competent like after a fashion you know like uh, Detritus Copper. Detritus's evolution since we see him for the first time in Gar's Guards is like a very subtle but wonderful thing to behold we see him for the first time in uh, Colour of Magic is it in Colour of Magic oh that's right he is in Colour yeah, of Magic yeah, I forgot he's, about he's that yeah. in Colour of Magic but um, um, considering like the way how far he comes like, you see him in that and he's also in uh, moving pictures in mm. a very different role and when you consider now, here he is, like, and he's actually an accomplished watchman. Like, it's it's a great art form. Yeah, Pratchett said he might be the most upwardly mobile character in the whole yeah, story. I believe it and everything, yeah. And do you know what? One thing that really shocked me is when you're talking about the um, how, like, the watch is expanding. I remember this, I think this shocked me the second time I read it as well, but this being the third time. But uh, at one point they say, oh, yeah, we have something like... 22 watchmen now in the city and it's like wow it's only 22 it feels like so much more it feels like nearly half the city is made up of the watch you know but then uh, maybe that's just how it feels like later on um and it's great how there's really considering how like powerful a force the watch becomes like they're really a force to be reckoned with as the series continues and then they have to start coming up with reasons to, for, to get volumes away from all this power like you can't just sit back and say well I've basically got an army here and they come up with some really good reasons yeah. in some books and then some not-so-good ones. I'm kind of thinking of snuff here, but uh, maybe we'll go back and change your mind on yeah, that we'll, one. we'll see when we get there. Um, but, yeah, you see him struggling with that throughout this, too, that he kind of wants to be hands-on, but yet the nature of his job when he's at the top of this big group is that he's going to be doing, you know, making... Uh, uh, what, what sort of... Giving the orders rather than carrying them out. Mm, exactly, um, yeah. Uh, can we talk about Cheery Littlebottom for a little bit? <laughs> yeah, we absolutely can. Because... Uh, who, I, like, my main memory of, of Cheery was that I thought, like, oh, yeah, um, she had that really cool arc about, like, coming out as a female and how it, like, 
serves both parallels with um you know uh people both coming out of the closet um for their sexuality but now also for like the trans, trans yeah. identities and things like that so she was sort of just like when when i as we were approaching this book she was just curiosity to me of oh like that'll be an interesting thing to get your teeth into mm. now but she's just such a lovely character as well. Like her kind of weird, like you know, she's very endearing. Attempts to like to make her own um, identity uh, are really lovely, and her um, how do you like like her her dislike of the undead initially to me felt a bit like like sort of contrived or like unsubtle in that like. Oh look, Anya is you know unsure of a bear place in the watch, and she's made this new friend. But all our new friends doesn't know she's a werewolf and actually hates werewolves. <laughs> but then, as it goes on, um, you like for one, it's it's something that's like even more credence in the future by the fifth elephant when you see what the werewolves do in Uberwald. But as it goes on, you learn that Cherry came from this place, and her you know she's relatively skilled by werewolves. Also, that like you have Anya kind of pondering on like, oh, I really like her, and yet. You know, it's really uncomfortable. It's just these things about hating werewolves. Why do I really like her? And that sort of feels really convincing. It feels kind of convincing that, like, Angel mm. would ha- still have this affection for her, despite that, because Cheery's just so kind of, um, how would you put it, like, uh, unconfident and kind of fumbling her way around that her prejudices don't really carry any real barb to them. Um, yeah, but at one point, uh, Angel says that. The, she thinks part of the reason that uh, she likes uh, Cheery so much, or Sherry, as she's later known, yeah. um, is that it's because she doesn't know that she's a werewolf, and like she wants to keep it that way. Whereas other people are always have their guard up a little bit. Like Cheery kind of feels that she can op- open up to her, and like there's kind of a bond in that sense that you know she has this secret that she's able to confide in her, and whereas Anguid doesn't confide her secret mm-hmm. in her, she still feels like this. Wow, this person is like there's a connection there. And I think that's a really interesting um, psychological aspect of it that, like, considering, like, we're talking about transgender and gay and, like, all this sort of, um, you know, all this sort of discourses that are uh, going on in this book, it's interesting that uh, Angu is a character who, you know, even though she's not being, I suppose, true to herself, you know, she's kind of living in her safety zone. She's not, like, you know, in a way, like, uh, Cheery is like uh, tentatively coming out for the majority of the book. Now, Angua, everybody knows her situation, yeah. but she's like fearful of like coming out to Cheery as a werewolf, you know? So um, it's interesting that. Uh... <sighs> oh, God. Oh, it's not... interesting. All it's, right. it's certainly interesting. <laughs> See, the, the problem I think I have with this is that it's. I feel like Terry Pratchett himself wasn't really... Sh- like, he approaches this topic, but I'm not really sure he knows where to go with it. He just kind of, you know, gives it a little tip of the cap and say, this is a thing that exists, and that's sort of it. And it's sort of reflected in the way that um, people react to Cheery coming out with, like, all the, the mascara and yeah. the lipstick, you know. Everybody says, "There's, there's is your eyes brewed? Are, are your eyes, eyes bruised? He says, oh, it's mascara, sir. Oh, all right then. You know, that's kind of the attitude that I feel that resonates the whole way through. Is like, okay, transgender is a thing that exists. But and I, I, I like it because I feel like he his approach to it, now I don't know for certain, but I feel like his approach to it was more, in fantasy, you hardly ever see any female dwarves. Why don't you see any female dwarves? If I had to write a book, 
what's the story with female dwarves? Oh, okay, they look much like male inside a hydrogen trainer. I'll write about that. And then the parallels to uh, alternative sexualities and gender identities hmm. emerge from this idea rather than him sitting down and be like, I'm going to write the fantasy equivalent of, you know, trans uh, or like, you know, um, LGBT issues. Yeah. And like, I like the fact that, it, you know, you can sort of draw parallels to both of them and yet it isn't very obvious transition of either. And, and there's a, like a lot of little things like, like the fact that she, uh, the pronouns change, that it goes from he to she, mm. uh, but in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat to make kind of Cheery's actual gender some sort of cheap reveal. It's more that, that's how Cherry would consider herself before yeah. she gets comfortable with her own uh, gender identity. I like the fact that she comes up with all these names, different names in this one, and yet after this she remains Cherry. Yeah. And that when Anya, she talks about like borrowing, what is it, like perfume and stuff from Anya and makeup, and yet she isn't going to shave her beard. So her like, her dwarven female identity isn't just like her aping human female identity, you know? Yeah, that um, I did like, I have yeah, to say. That was uh, very good. I like that, like the um, those little jokes about like Carrot and kind of Vimes noticing little things. I feel like in different circumstances, it just could be like just really bad. Like, oh, what's going on? What like did someone you know punch you in the face or something at mascara? But they're just touched on really lightly, and it makes sense that they're touched on really lightly because there's so much other shit going on in the plot that like Carrot and Vimes barely have time to take this in. Mm. Um, and yet I like the fact that when Vimes eventually does take it in he takes it in his stride completely there's a bit like the, the first acknowledgement of it comes when he says to uh, when Cheery has just found out Angie was a werewolf after Angie saves her from falling in a molten vat of candle wax mm. um, and they're sort of arguing like Cheery's like oh why didn't you tell me you know like and, and the implicit thing is there as you say like you knew my secret I didn't you know you didn't tell me yours and, and we don't have to you know, we don't have to hear her say that. Like, it's, uh, you know, we know it as readers, which is quite silver. And, uh, you know, Angie was saying, well, like, I, you know, I didn't want you looking at me like you were scared. Uh, and the Vimes just goes, okay, ladies. Uh, and it's, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I think it's great because it's like, like he's saying, yeah, you're like, you're a woman now. I've just found out. I've just really sort of been kind of drip fed and haven't really had much time to uh, like to concentrate or acknowledge the fact that this is your identity and I'm just going to now acknowledge it in this very offhand way mm. because frankly we've got a we've got a crime to stop come on follow you know he, he doesn't he's not going to make a big thing of it there's no kind of like scene where it's like well little bottom whatever you want to do is okay <laughs> by me because but he's like his way of making Cheery comfortable and of kind of respecting her identity it's just going to be like that it's going to be very casual I like the fact that Carrot for how moral and how perfect he is is less comfortable with it initially because he was mm. raised by dwarves that yeah. makes sense that he would you know he would struggle with it a bit more um, that's very interesting yeah. actually and, and, and I like the idea that this kind of creates a, like a snowball effect where you see the other dwarves being appalled with cheery and then one of them is like oh can i try on the lipstick and then later there's mention of more yeah out, uh, like kind of i think it's a jingo female dwarves it's yeah. kind of like a little movement yeah it's really interesting that um if it's a nice kind of follow-on from uh men at arms in a way because now these are two different discourses that are kind of uh not exactly at odds but Bear with me on it. It's just, you know that how in Men at Arms, the uh, big issue in it was basically race, or, or in this case, speciesism. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's it was great the way that it was dealt with, but it's interesting how in this one, they kind of, 
investigate sub discourses within discourses. Like the the whole uh, thing with um, you know we have trolls, humans, and dwarves, but here we're looking at like you know female dwarves and how that's that that's obviously different from male dwarves. And it kind of reminded me of um, there's a there's kind of a, a from what I heard I'm not really too up to date on this, but every now and then I hear about there's a discourse within the LGBTQ uh, community that um, bisexuals aren't really uh, they're kind of at odds with uh, homosexuals and because they're uh, not really regarded as queer in that you know it's there's uh, you know there's that whole element of you know oh you can choose which mm-hmm. who you go with so like you know you're not limited in the way we are you know there's, there's all these discourses within yeah. discourses and yeah and there's other stuff as well like even people who are uh, homosexuals just still viewing sexuality as just yeah where they're like no you're confused or you're like a gay person in denial or a mm. straight person faking it or something like that and there's also um there's the other, the other one that i'm more familiar with is in uh feminism how there are different like waves of feminism and like uh courses of feminism where for example you know there's a difference between white feminism and like you know black feminism or like you know Middle Eastern feminism versus, you know, uh, American feminism, all, all these kind of things, because there's aspects within each of these cultures that they all fall under, like, uh, the wave of feminism, but they have branching paths, and, like, they not, might not necessarily agree or, like, whatever, but, you know, it's, I feel like this book kind of approaches that sort of thing, and it's particularly interesting how Angua, who is, you know, undead, and she has this sort of resentment for golems. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's kind of like... Uh, and in the previous book, you know, Vimes has this, oh, you know, I don't like trolls, I don't like dwarves, and I don't like the undead. And in this one, uh, you can see that Angua, who is, like, a minority, has this weird kind of almost racist attitude towards another minority. Yeah, that it isn't just this one binary of, like, there's humans on one side... And everyone else is discriminated yeah. against. It's like so, together yeah. in arms on the other. That there are going to be these, yeah, like yeah, inter yeah, discriminations and prejudices. Yeah, and and I I like your reasoning for it as well. Mm. Of that, you know, uh, as the undead, like she sees the kind of fear and unease she inspires in people, and yet these like guys who aren't she doesn't even consider properly alive are allowed to just roam around and yeah everyone's very comfortable with them and it's actually quite interesting that because you know on the one hand there's i mean she almost describes it almost like in terms of a ladder you know you have life you have the undead and then you have the likes of golems mm-hmm. so she hates like golems because like they're not feared but if you think about it like they are much much worse off than the undead because they're just treated like objects whereas yeah. you know it's, it's just really interesting the whole dynamic between her and uh the golems themselves, and it, it contrasts nicely with uh, Cheery's, you know, uh, distaste of werewolves, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, she being a werewolf and she's having to deal with that while also dealing with all these uh, golems as well. It's just uh, it, it it juggles a lot of balls here, and uh, I, I love what what Daniel's thing with her kind of were, werewolfhood in the watch that most of them know about it, and they're all just really again showing how far she's come since our men arms. They're all. Uh, you know how would you put it like comfortable and confident of her strength like the bit at the start when the guys break into the uh, bar they're in and mm. t- take her hostage 
and you know it's like oh don't you know was it go easy on them and it, the thieves say like oh you're not gonna tell us what to do and carrot's like no i'm not talking to you and him and all the other watchmen are just joking like oh these lads are gonna get the you know they're gonna get absolutely ripped to shreds by angular yeah. in a few minutes and it's cool to see that like you know they had just have that you know that level of uh, uh confidence in their their comrade like that and yet at the same time i sort of buy the fact that they can both be um how would you put it like confident uh of her ability to take care of herself and regard her werewolf nature as a useful thing when they use it and yet uncomfortable around her in general because yeah. of it you know it's interesting and, how like, like the racism still exists in this world yeah. it's just regulated better like what well, there's that moment at the start where um cheery's being uh she's brought in and like uh, Vines is interviewing her and she says uh, he says something like if any of the trolls call you a grit sucker they're out and if you call any of the rocks you're out mm-hmm. so there's this acknowledgement that yeah racism wasn't solved in men at arms you know it's still an ongoing thing and you know I think it's neatly reflective of that kind of passive racism that you see in like everyday life you know that like there's all these like little comments like that moment where they're in the the bar the the undead bar mm-hmm. and uh you know someone makes like a snide comment like um i can't remember exactly what it was something along the lines of uh she, she oh what was it the bartender asks and what about the dwarf and someone at the back says oh she's saving him for later or something like that you mm-hmm. know little snide comments like that so it just emphasizes how emphasizes sorry how that's still an ongoing thing. Yeah, or detritus. Um, and he doesn't even mean it as a comment, but when he says the thing to Cheery Little Bum, but like, oh, that's a weird name. Dwarves aren't usually called that. Mm. And she's like, oh, really? What are they called? And he kind of realizes what a stupid comment it is to be able to say to a dwarf, yeah. your name is weird for a dwarf. Most of the dwarf, you know, it's, it's like telling you, like, you know, my, my view of your culture trumps your view of, you know, your, your culture and he, he kind of realizes that and, you know and, and shuts up but like yeah that's another nice thing where it's like again this is how prejudice in general whether it's for uh race or sexuality or uh class or religion or species or mm. like level of aliveness in yeah. however it functions it doesn't function in these straight lines it doesn't you know it isn't a case of like i said isn't like now we have solved this issue yeah that's it's always going to be there and kind of bubble up in these like little um ways and yeah he just sets it up uh wonderfully here. it's actually it's interesting what you said there about uh, how detritus is somebody who's in some ways more aware of like the way he treats other people than most other people mm-hmm. like uh when he notices uh Chiri's discomfort he realizes that he made a mistake and he kind of backs up and likes or i think he says oh it's a good dwarf name you know kind of as as an apology and it's interesting because later on in the book uh vine shows the try is the coat of arms the what was it the poison candle poison oh yeah, uh, poison yeah. lamp that was it like the uh the fish called the poison like and a lamp and uh he realizes oh yeah the poison lamp and he spells out like the answer to the mystery right there and vimes says something along the lines of it took someone like as simple as detritus to spell out the truth mm-hmm. and that resonated with me when i thought back to that moment because it was like yeah he sees like the very simple like situations that we're all just people that whole thing he acknowledges that they're different but like he just he gets that whereas other people who have like more 
complex mind i suppose who are like more swayed by other people and like uh nature versus nurture that whole thing they all have these more biased views so yeah it's just interesting that that's a yeah that was an aspect of it i think that's sort of like the complex view of how all of these things work and how they interweave uh parallels nicely with the whole idea of the the uh, what is it the college of heralds or um of heraldry yeah and that they have this very neatly uh, regulated records of the nobility. You know, they've got them all gone back. They can draw these neat little family trees that um, Dragon is so disgusted at the idea of Carrot, you know, going out with a, a werewolf and mm-hmm. that, that they regulate things like who gets to have a, who gets to have a family crest. Um, kind of that idea of how uh, society should work in these kind of neat, pre-arranged lines like breeding dogs mm. um just is like you know uh but like like it's it's good again it's good because it, it's there implicitly like vimes never says to dragon at the end oh imagine how you deal with a female dwarf or a, <laughs> a troll or a werewolf and a watch um but that kind of much more uh complex uh milly bluest attitude to all of these things that, that like that we see in the book and that the book kind of advocates contrast with this really strict rigid view of how society should work that the, the, mm. the villain has um, actually I did think uh, it's again it's a shame similar to Mandarms that Sybil doesn't feature very much here because she's a really good character yeah. but all the more so because Vimes says to Dragon about Sybil breeding dragons um, mm. and how like what he is do dragon is doing with humans is something similar and it feels sort of weird that there wasn't a scene where you know vimes is in the dragon kennels with sybil yeah. talking about this and that, you know like the, the those parallels are drawn a little more strongly or maybe it it gets him thinking of but i suppose of, um it i mean yeah i i suppose there are so many uh bits with dragons i mean the first the guards guards was all about dragons the men at arms there was like a lot of you they use dragons an awful lot like to further the story i think i'm glad that they didn't have that and they used golems instead to get that point across because i felt that was um it was it was different it it really makes this book stand out for that reason like oh i, I don't mean it should have or could have been a huge thing i just it is odd yeah if it, it's like when we've done reaper man i said it's weird that uh um or no, we don't uh, mend arms and Angus stays with Mrs. Cake who has a werewolf daughter and you never see them together. Yeah, This yeah. feels weird in that same way where this, okay, like it kind of feels like a small missed opportunity where like, oh yeah, like that, like mm. they actually draw a parallel there. Vime says, this is similar to what Sybil's doing and yet we never see Sybil or, or doing any of that. It, it kind of just feels odd that we, yeah. maybe, like maybe he wrote it and thought it was too, it made the, the, on the nose. comparison, yeah, too on the nose or struggle to reconcile that like dragon is bad for his kind of breeding and yet Sybil's a sympathetic character and she does it mm. um i i don't know but i it just kind of like you know as soon as i've said that i was like oh yeah what why haven't we, why haven't we seen it i do get what you mean like that like if this was a tv show or a film i'd assume that like the actress playing Sybil had a clash like in her calendar yeah, or something yeah, like it kind of feels like that yeah absolutely. um yeah it's it's strange all right yeah but on the topic of um breeding and um shout out to my new niece and nephew if they're around <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah the whole idea of uh the golems and the idea of life um 
a lot of parallels I found with Frankenstein, which I'm sure you probably saw as well. Yeah. And the whole idea of the modern Prometheus and like, it's interesting that um, in the likes of Frankenstein, it's all about man playing God and, you know, uh, creating life and ultimately how this is a terrible, terrible idea. (laughs) But um, in this one, it's the golems themselves. I mean, the golem um, was, you know, an old Hebrew story. So, and it, that too has a lot of parallels with the story of uh, Frankenstein. But this kind of takes it a step further where they're kind of, everyone's kind of semi-okay with golems. Like, you know, they use them for like everyday life and you hear stories about things they've done, but uh, it just seems like they're just stories. Yeah, we don't get any single creator figure yeah. like Dr. Frankenstein who's seen as mad like for transgressing this boundary. Between, yeah, but uh, uh, the problem seems to stem from like the golems themselves creating life Mm -hmm. which i suppose in a way does make sense because frankenstein was all about man creating man so this is like non-man creating non-man i suppose it's um yeah i found myself thinking an awful lot about artificial intelligence when i was reading Mm -hmm. it because i my favorite i think one of my favorite scenes in the book is at the very very end where dorfel has his own words in his head and he can make his own choices and he encounters all the priests on the bridge. <laughs> yeah, and um, they all want to smash him up. And Dorfel puts forward the suggestion that, like, uh, in order to see if life exists, you have to basically completely destroy me and see if, what was it, that he can re... Yeah, see, re- basically see if there's, like, any essential atoms of life. In exactly. Him. But in order to do that, someone else must volunteer to do the same. And that's, aside from being really, really funny, the way the priests react... That leaves it really deliciously ambiguous. Yeah, it's it's like what 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 is how do we define like what's the quality that like yeah it's you know what, like it's like Blade Runner at the end you know the whole idea of like whoa was Deckard a, a replicant a replicant and like the the best thing about that film is the fact that they don't answer that question. Yeah. I haven't seen the 2049, so I don't know if they do answer it. Don't tell me. Okay. But um, probably going to see a load of comments saying, yeah, he is, or no, he's not. <laughs> well, you, should, you should see it anyway. I will, I'll I get really to it. Like it. But um, yeah, that's what I like about this one, is that they leave it hanging. Because like, you could very easily take the argument as, no, we see, we've seen how golems are made, we see how they work, they're clearly just machines. But, like, there's aspects of, like, Dorfel that, and even, like, uh, Meshuggah, the Golem King, that you're like, no, that's characteristic of life. And there's that bit where um, Vimes is writing out uh, all the characteristics of, like, what do what do things that are alive do? And he writes down, like, uh, eat, sleep, crap. Eat, sleep, that, but then at the end, make, make, new, more, make like more of them. And I'm like, yeah, they're actually fulfilling, like, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the yeah. things, like, ticking all the boxes is, that you require for life, you Isn't know? There, there, like, science, there's seven qualities for, for life? Um, like, uh, like, respiration, eat, reproduction, growth. excretion, growth. Yeah. yeah. Actually, um, Heather Gray, who I don't know if she still listens to this podcast, but I know she did when uh, we started. She's an artist who, like, her thing for the IDT grad show was that she had built a machine that reproduced all of these seven things for life so it was technically alive oh wow it's like a wonderful hodgepodge of you know well like loads of different kind of machines basically tied together but all in their kind of own ways they were you know one of them was doing the respiration and one of them was doing the uh, um like growing and oh, so on. Wow. Like, i can't exactly remember how it worked but i really like i never really liked it it was like the uh, best thing i saw at the uh, grad show that year which 
he's saying something like standards usually pretty good. Wow, that's but, um, Yeah, that's uh, like a got an odd odd parallel where I know she she left to comment after her Color of Magic episode way back when, and um, that idea of she she was looking into that idea of like where we draw the line with life, you know, <laughs> these kind of neat ways we've saying like okay, to be alive you've got to have these seven qualities, and then if you can suddenly make those in a machine, does that mm. you know make it alive? It's yeah, it's interesting, and it ties into the Discworld thing in general. It's to do about stories having a life of their own. That it's like these yeah. golems have had words in their heads for so long, mm. and those are sort of going to eventually rub off on them, and um, yeah, just uh, keep them going. Like that, Dorfel can still move after his yeah. uh, after he gets he, smashed up, and his his uh, what is it, Chen Kim Kim yeah. yeah gets uh, taken out. I mean, it really like, w- words in the heart cannot be taken. Oh, like I yeah. that, that that you know got me got me straight in my heart. <laughs> I welled up when I saw that. It's it's um, beautiful. This this hit me much more emotionally. Dorval's whole uh, quest for life in this than I had any other time I've read this book before. Mm. Uh, which is weird because I'm very suspicious of the possibility of uh, AI and of the dangers it poses, and I I Absolutely. really think there should be a lot more regulation on it than there is. And yet here I found myself sympathising hugely with Dorfel's um, Dorfel's quest to well, like, just keep thinking game. of Meshuggah, who is also technically alive, <laughs> yeah, and like so that'll nice. bring you right back into the fury that no, we should regulate AI uh, absolutely more. I find it really interesting at the end that um, it's all the uh, the religious groups who mm-hmm. are stopping, but there's nothing like a. There's no alchemists or the equivalent of scientists there, maybe wizards or something like that, who come out to argue the same sort of thing. Because usually you find in uh, our own circles, you usually find there's a more argument. It's usually, you know, the church versus science Mm -hmm. for a lot of aspects, you know, like how, where life came from and all that sort of thing. Which kind of sets up like the wizards and the priests like that, you know, and is it? Is it Reaper Reaper Man? Man, Where they go to the veterinaries and they start getting into a fight with each other? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I know. I suppose the wizards would be less bothered because they deal with all these other forms of life. Like see, that's the thing. Like they they can bring like stuff. They probably could bring stuff to life through magic. So in their minds, they're like, this doesn't. Science doesn't really really have a place in uh, this world. Weirdly enough, like except I'm, in the science of the this world. Of course, yeah, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> which we haven't read yet. So I don't know, like where that comes from it's just I just found it really interesting that like that sidesteps there I mean there is a it's a much more interesting argument to bring like priests into it yeah. and like you know discuss you know aspects of life with like the theologians and the fact that a uh, constable visit is there at the end and uh, that's oh, I really like him actually it's, it's a great it's he's a, one of my favourite uh, it's a know, great little payoff characters. yeah it's a wonderful payoff the fact that the whole way through it that you're kind of dealing with him have you read those pamphlets like you know uh, like all you know trying yeah. to get people to read these pamphlets and at the very end you find Dorfel who's really interested is like ah oh, that's great <laughs> I um I, was, I, I suppose that the thing with the lack of uh science equivalent around the, the golems and the debates about them is that like you were saying unlike Frankenstein there's no sort of creator figure in fact the whole thing is they say like oh all the golems were created hundreds of years ago and mm. like, no one no, no one's been allowed to create one so if you had like an AI debate going on now and, and there were, like it was between kind of you know you had it between like religious and scientific communities presumably the science people on one or the other side of it would have been people who either had a hand in creating it or whose you know colleagues did, or had these feelings where there's no one 
we don't see anyone who made the golems and then has this vested interest in defending, you know, defending them or defending their, you know, mm. uh, possibilities of them getting um, life and rights and things like that. I really like how when Vimes brings Dorfel along at the end, his kind of personhood is um, affirmed by the fact that he's the witness to the uh, dragon's confession. Yeah, that's a very nice touch. And he's just like, you don't have a witness. And like, so it's like the fact that he can be a witness means that now he's now a person. Mm, Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very sub, much a subcategory, but it's a very Discworld guards thing to do, you know? Yeah. So, which is, uh, it's really good. Do you know what I found? Um, I found there was a, something of a parallel between Nobby and Meshuggah, actually. Okay. Because, um, do you know how Nobby is talking about when the prospect of becoming a king is kind of put forward to him, but he hasn't really realized it's an offer yet. He's kind of thinking, oh, having to deal with all this stuff, you know, uh, you'd never get time to rest. It's no life. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when someone kind of suggests it to him, even though the main reason he's shocked or horrified is seems to be Vimes, I think there is an element of, I don't want to have to deal with all that work, all that shit. I just want my... I just want my cigarette in the archway, that's all. And it's interesting because Meshuggah doesn't really get a choice in that matter. He's kind of, kinghood is forced upon him. Kinghood, if that's what you want to call it. Like, I mean, they call him the Golden King throughout the book. And the results, it speaks for itself. He goes absolutely insane and on a rampage. And you kind of wonder, is that how how Nobby would have reacted as well (laughs) if he found himself as a king? I mean, I don't think he'd go on a rampage, but like he might have had a, definitely had a breakdown. Yeah, and they're both kind of uh, like constructed kings. Other people want them to be kings for their own ends. Like Mm. obviously the golems are much more, uh, their reasons are much more, how would you put it, sympathetic than the the guild leaders and the nobles. But ultimately they want the king because it will, you know, help them, help them rule Mm. them and, give them purpose and get you know uh get them free and so on where um so yeah actually, i hadn't thought of it another way but the, and you the know parallels are definitely there what's also interesting actually is do you know i think at one point uh one of the guild leaders says well we had some mad kings as well they didn't start off mad i think one of them says at one point mm-hmm. don't they so it's it's interesting how they're talking about like the pressures of you know leadership and all that sort of thing and how it kind of can reduce these people down to gibbering wrecks or whatever I suppose if you think of it in that light, everything that we were saying about old Stoneface Vines kind of takes on a, a different kind of angle. It's, uh, you know, the kind of, even though uh, Men at Arms in particular, they describe the Mad King in ways that makes him very unsympathetic. Uh, but in this one, even though it's not like directly there, there is a suggestion of like maybe it was the pressures of kinghood that yeah, made him what well, he is. No, so Men at Arms is one of the other ones that basically implies he's a paedophile. That's Men at Arms. Yeah, yeah or mm. he's very fond of children. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I kind of see like uh, child abuse is something that he, you know, was probably it probably implied to have been with him all the time, you know, rather than just like. Mm. Oh, feeling so much pressure being king I think I'm about to <laughs> abuse a child <laughs> but like do you not think that that's there though this is like whole idea of um, like the pressures of leadership and kinghood and all that I mean it ties into like for Nobby's whole arc and then there's like Sugar himself and then Vimes and the way that he views Vetinari and the city in general and then of course Vetinari himself and the way he handles He's kind of like pulling the strings on everything. He's like one of the few capable leaders in the entire book. Yeah, well, I think I think it does a good job of like looking at 
why you like an absolute monarchy or even some monarchy at all is a bad idea from the other side of it whereas like in men in arms and guards guards we've seen you know volumes question the justice in like who's this guy's right to rule just because of who his ancestors were and mm. because he has absolute power it means that you know it gives power to all these people below him and if any of them are bad then there's going to be no justice in the system and here we see how oh this is also a bad idea for the people involved for the, the kings themselves because they they have this trust upon them even though they mightn't be qualified or even want to do it mm. and like uh, yeah that's not going to be a very good thing but despite that I think like Lorenzo the Kind is the the last king that Stoneface killed I don't think I don't know I think it's a stretch to say that like we're meant to see him oh no I, I don't or, think we're supposed to in, see in, in any way or or some kind of tragic figure that like you know began promising and devolved into I, 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 I agree with you I absolutely be, agree with you I just thought yeah. that might be like an avenue worth exploring actually yeah. but you know we're just spending way too much time now so like I said that kind of like parallel was just a irksome curiosity to me rather than a big part of the book um big part of the book is that like transhumanism stuff with uh, mm. with Dorfel of what constitutes life um which is just done so uh, wonderfully and kind of this like volumes wondering about uh, maybe we're so uncomfortable with them because we know we like if they did turn on us we deserve it because mm. of all the jobs they give to the golems and the absolute fear everyone has when uh, Dorfel sort of goes to the end and he sets the animals free and he can't understand why they're you know why they won't go free if he just lets them which again ties into the Cockbell Street sort of stuff about like um people you know in this case obviously it's not it's not a perfect comparison because the animals are animals so they're you know not gonna be they don't have a concept of freedom really yeah but um but uh that it isn't enough just to say to people oh you're free now they're they've got cages walls inside their heads that these mm. that these systems have built up and Dorfel kind of having to readjust to that because he sort of uh rubber bands like bungees from one extreme of being unable to disobey in order to you know questioning everything at the end Uh, like like Dorfel's like like you know when you've just learned critical theory in college and you're being a real pedantic shit about it just like (laughs) going around questioning everything yeah yeah. (laughs) sort of haven't 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 learned the the limits of just okay yeah you know for the sake of politeness or whatever stuff going on about this now um, but it makes him quite endearing because it sort of uh, like Cheery, he has that sense of he's feeling his way around the world and what mm. he wants to be, and that's going to involve a few slip ups and mix ups and <laughs> him standing on people's toes, so to speak. Uh, but it's sort of fun to watch him try. It's a pity that I don't think he's much of a prominent character in the later watchbooks. Yeah, um, I do remember he shows up again, and there's just a brief mention of, oh, yes, Dorfel was a golem. There was that incident from Feet of Grey, and I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a pity. We obviously, I mean, as the watchbooks go on, they get a bigger and bigger cast, mm. and it becomes harder and harder for them to give them all the, you know, uh, limelight that you, you might always um, wish for. Which, again, I think is a huge strength of this book. That yeah, we, definitely. Like, I mean, Sybil uh, is the only character in that kind of cast that you associate with the watch that doesn't really get a, a proper outing here everyone else gets gets time to shine yeah frankly it's absolutely staggering how well balanced this book is in terms of character viewpoints um do you know one thing that just popped into my head there is actually do you know the act of um 
you know when Dorfo releases all the animals and he uses uh, the what was the name of the goat the one that uh, Yudaskoter Yudaskoter yeah Yudiscoter. yeah uh, how he uses that to basically release all the animals and I found again you could also compare that with Nobby again because <laughs> like Nobby's this like character who like uh, you know he doesn't really know what he's doing he just want, wants to do his own thing and the uh, Yudaskoter in a way is kind of similar mm-hmm. and um, I think this is so the this is kind of the enactment of the lesson I think Vimes learns with Veterinary in that like Dorfo tries to release all these animals and like you said the animals they don't really yeah. acknowledge freedom and it's just like chaos it's a stampede and both Vimes and the guild leaders kind of learn this is why we need uh, you know order this is why we need Veterinary to keep things like in check because if you had someone like Nobby who, like the others go, is just kind of going to go along with things, it will be chaos, everything will just fall apart. Yeah, so. well, I mean, Nobby and the others had shared a thing where he would be being used as a figurehead, presumably to enact, you know, a certain amount of oppression on the people, like all the guild leaders and people that mm. seem to want to use him don't seem like they'd have a much more, um, I suppose, a much harsher uh, way of ruling the city than uh, veterinary does but that he wouldn't be hurt himself because he'd be the figurehead and the same mm. way the yoga scout leads the animals in to be slaughtered but isn't slaughtered. Yeah. And they have that lovely moment where he just looks at the goat and feels, has this moment of fellow feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you and me both. <laughs> um, yeah, and I suppose that does kind of, you do see that like this is, this is what, um, this is why you need a, a leader that is more than a figurehead, that is more than someone who people have just kind of arbitrarily decided to, Crown king. Otherwise, everyone's yeah. just gonna literally go to shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very literally. I also like how um, you know Colon realizes that he doesn't want to be like a farmer uh, or own a farm after that he's gotten really close to animals. And I think this speaks to the whole theme of ignorance again coming into play. Mm-hmm. How like he's got this idea, you know, the whole grass is always greener on the other side. So I really want to like own a farm because I've heard yeah. it's like a wonderful thing. And then once he kind of comes to grips with that he realises this is the worst situation I can possibly imagine nope I'm going to stay in my little bubble and that in itself is actually a little bit problematic how everybody really wants to stay in their bubble um, with with, with some some exceptions I mean it's it's playing with cop movie cliches to buy the farm is to die. Mm. Like a, it's a euphemism for it. And it's still he was only two days away from retirement. I I mean he's put in uh, as much danger in this book as he ever has been. So I feel like Pratchett's teasing with the, like, first time readers are thinking, oh my god, is Colin gonna die? And then he doesn't, thankfully. Um, but, like, I, like, I feel like for him, it's. You, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll approach from the other side. You say stay in a bubble, I'm saying like this about identity being trust on you and people rejecting that and forging your own identity. And here, Colin is just kind of in sort of the same way that Vimes was last when he's sort of arbitrarily having to retire because he's mm. gotten to the age, even though he really likes being a copper and it's, you know, whatever, he gets a decent wage of it and him and his wife seem happy. Um, and it's about him deciding like, oh, you know what, even though I'm supposed to retire, I don't want to, uh, I'll stick with this. Cheery has her gender identity kind of trust on her and, you know, forces that out and like makes her own thing. Nobby has the identity of like kingship trust on him. It doesn't want that carrot has always like implicitly rejected being a king and just settled for like being a pretty good watchman that he likes. And probably the only character that doesn't really resolve that is Anua, and that's flagged up in the in the text like very deliberately where she doesn't and and there's very much a sense of this is unresolved, you will see more of this. Like she says herself, 
like she's you know about to leave and she's giving her stuff to Cheery and Cheery's like oh look do you want to hang out some bit and then he goes yeah I might need some and she's kind of you you really do get the sense of she doesn't quite know um, and it's good I don't find it unsatisfying at all because you like her kind of arguments with herself about whether she should go are complex and engaging enough the book does so much else that like it's forgivable that this one plot line is left unresolved mm. and it you know I talked up before about how when we're judging these, even though we've read a lot of the ones that come after them, I try not to kind of too much like factor in either to the book's merit or to its um, to its uh, detraction, yeah, detriment. That's mm. the word I'm looking for. Um, like what will come afterwards, because you know, yeah. you know mm. But but I definitely do feel like he he knows he's going to revisit this, and he's setting it up in such a way that the reader, even if you're reading this for the first time in 1996 you know mm. so that's kind of okay that that, that yeah. isn't resolved yeah. and also it makes it feel like a big complex issue that you know needs a bit of like needs some weight it's like it's not everything's not going to be wrapped up by the end of this book yeah I suppose yeah. you could um, it's it's very easy to be cynical when you have something like sequel based like dangling in front of you but sometimes you know it's such a beloved series like this and it's obviously beloved by us I mean it is somewhat comforting to know that, like, yeah, this is a big organic world. And that's something that I'd really, really like to be explored again. It's not necessarily like, you know, oh, they're going to spin something else out of this. Because that's something you usually, I find I usually associate that with um, uh, producers and films. You know, yeah. like you know, putting a question mark at the end of uh, uh, the end, at the end of a film is a lot easier to do than to lovingly craft a character who has more backstory to be explored and leaving it unexplored. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a real love for the character there, so it's a much easier thing to forgive than you would get in the likes of films or something like that. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's very easy to forgive that altogether. The, the, the one weird bit about it that I, I found is at the end, when she's sort of arguing with herself about, you know, why she should go and how she can fit in, she says something about, like... like she doesn't take the watch seriously or something like or compares herself to Carrot and say maybe I don't have my copy of the book here but like so maybe um, I mean if, if obviously Carrot Carrot takes the watch more seriously than anyone maybe even including uh, Vimes so that's that's not a real thing but yeah I'm sure it's, it's something better uh... you know I think it's really interesting that um, the prospect of marriage is something that kind of uh, hinges on her mind towards the end of the book and I feel like that's probably a key part. That and um, when she's searching Carrot's face at the end for like a glimmer of sarcasm or of irony or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes Carrot himself such an endearing character, not just for us, but for everybody, is that we rarely get a real insight into how he thinks. And there's constant suggestions that he's much more intelligent than he lets on, that the things he's saying, like he's, you know, he's manhandling his own words so that they will come across in a certain way but he always seems entirely sincere and you sometimes get the sensation that he's just an incredible actor and he's like saying these things to kind of um you know get his own way like there's one in particular i think it's in it's in men at arms where uh, the day watch come in to take over mm -hmm. and i think uh colon orders him to um if the day watch order him to stand down, he's to stand down. Um, whereas he phrases it. Oh, I think it's where now it's where he goes into the uh, the clowns guild and says about the order. Like I'll have to, 
I'll have to carry out the order I received. Yeah, and if, 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 that's a, if, about him, if they I'm, say no, we're to walk away, and he says, that's an order. He says, okay, so he uh, phrases it such a way as, if you don't allow me in, I'll have to carry out an order that was given to me before I arrived. And it's like, it's so sly and so yeah. like uh, mischievous that you're like, he must be aware. He must be. Yeah. But um, it just, that's the mystery. And I think that's what keeps Angua hooked. The fact that she's trying to figure him out and it's just almost impossible. Yeah, there, actually there is some, uh, I, I love Cullen's line that is about, uh, I've seen people bluff with bad hands, but I've never seen people bluff with no hands before. Yeah. Um, but there is some internet theories that reckon like he is much more kind of conniving than he lets on. I think the fifth elephant is, well suggests uh, a certain degree of that, but obviously we'll get to it. I think um, it's the ending well, of Men at Arms that uh, does the best job of that when he's like uh, negotiating basically with, with the, uh, the patrician and it's, it's, it's so there, but it's still not blatantly said and that's, it's all in the subtext. That's really expertly written, that point. I can't find the bet I'm looking for here, but I just did come across it where uh, it went, Cara, ah, good morning, uh, Corporal Miss Littlebottom, said Cara cheerfully, which is another nice way where he's just kind of like come to terms. Uh, yeah, her, acknowledging yeah, that. Yeah. Her, right. But yeah, there's some line about her not taking the watch seriously, which I found sort of odd because she's obviously been more uh, angry. She's obviously been always more cynical and skeptical than Cara. But I feel like she's not quite as say cynical as like well, like Vimes would be at times, where he, mm. he like he both loves to watch, but also has this like you know really suspicious attitude of everyone. Yeah, and she she seems maybe not like not you know not so much job. So it just felt really odd where, uh, and particularly where we've seen the kind of like um, the importance the watch does, and the importance of bringing people like Dragon to justice and getting some kind of justice for people like uh, Mrs. Easy. It feels really weird that. You know, she's like, like at the end of the book, after all of that, she's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't even take this seriously. Why am I here? And I, like, I don't want to dwell too much because it's it's a little line. And I said I can't even find it. So it just struck me. It was the one odd bit where, like, for the rest of it, I was very engaged and very much kind of, like, could understand her whole debate with herself. It's like, where can our relationship with Carrot really go? She's uncomfortable with how the rest of the people in the Watch Viewer um, and so on. It was the one bit where it struck sort of odd with me. Where I, I kind of thought like, oh, I, think I, I never remember. really thought like she thought that way. And if she does, I sort of want to hear more about it now. But we don't because yeah, this, this book's just you know at, at the end. I suppose um, I know I I remember the line that you're talking about. I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but I suppose the way I always read that was that um, when she says she can't take the watch seriously, I always imagine that it's because she's like so preoccupied with her current like. Uh, her state being a werewolf and keeping that under wraps. And like, there's a bit towards the end of this where uh, she says, it's not about uh, not wanting to, it's about wanting to and not doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, basically describing like her trying to rip, or wanting to rip someone apart like because she's a mm-hmm. werewolf. And I suppose maybe you could read that. That's why she can't take the watch seriously because it's in a she's way... She's always holding back. Yeah, she's always like uh, repressing her own like primal urges. So like this is all just kind of an act for her. Where she's this like you know, logical, precise policeman. Like there's kind of a there's an interesting parallel between her and Vimes there actually. Yeah, with uh, the inner the inner watchman or the inner guard that he yeah. has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Um, actually, one thing we didn't even talk about that, but I thought it was an interesting point was whole topic of uh, police brutality because that actually is actively brought up at one point where. Uh, Detritus is um, talking to your man. The, the other troll. The other troll. I can't Igneous, remember. is it? Igneous, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he says, oh, this is police brutality. And, you know, it's kind of a throwaway line, but 
again, considering our current political climate, it's a very hot topic now at the moment. So, and uh, especially considering, uh, you know, species slash race is a topic that's explored in all these guards books. Like, you know, it feeds into that really, really interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, there, there is a, um, a like, it, it is another thing where it feels like it, it sort of works in the book because the plot is hurtling at such a speed then and you're so caught up in, like, the intensity and priority of needing to get some mystery solved that you're just like you feel to try this as impatience it's like oh I need to stop obstructing him mm-hmm. you know you're kind of like the plot's hurtling along so you don't really stop to wonder whether these are the best like most moral tactics to do it I, I also feel and, and maybe I don't know this is something that will like be an issue as these go on and we don't see it resolved but I always see those moments when the watch kind of like bully their way around um, I mean like Carrot's thing we were just talking about it with the, the clown skill that's not quite brutality but I, I I see that as like it's this acknowledgement of in the same way that Vimes is really angry at the inequality in like Park without being able to think of an alternative I see that sort of thing as it is like this weird acknowledgement of like Agmore Park doesn't work perfectly it doesn't mm-hmm. work like it should like a lot of corruption is just able to happen and a lot of crime is tolerated because of, I know it's effects for the economy or so on like the fact that Detroiters knows your man is dealing drugs but can't really stop him because he's you know he's in uh, informant or might help him in some other ways like it, it, it's basically like the laws breaking down because there are limits to how it can function because of the inequality that just seems written into Ankh-Morpork, Park which I think is really interesting but I don't know, maybe if, maybe it'll be frustrating the more we go on that, like, if that just isn't solved and that's kind of eventually deemed sort of satisfactory of, like, oh, yeah, uh, Angkor Park you like, might be really corrupt, but it's okay because the police are able to mm. throw their weight around and, and threaten people sometimes. So, you know, um, it works out okay in the end. Uh, I suppose it's even interesting just... Um like as you said, it, there's an acknowledgement that Ang Morpork doesn't work the way it should, but like you know, it does the best it can sort of way. It's kind of a similar sort of thing because we're always being shown how these characters are very human characters with flaws. The, the, the one possible exception to the rule is Carrot, but even he has issues, obviously, with the likes of uh, Cheery and all that. Everybody has flaws, and I suppose this is like I mean. You can't just say, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't solve that problem. Like, that's not a perfect solution. That's the whole point. You know, this is like a whole distorted mirror thing that, like, yeah, police, police brutality is an issue. And in this one, you know, it's an end to justify the means. But that doesn't make necessarily make it okay. You know, it could prob- possibly be done in a more uh, rigorous way. It's just much more satisfying on our end of the spectrum when we view it from our perspective for it to go this way. Like, for, for example... Um, when Vimes burns down, like, the College of Arms, you know, that's mm-hmm. that feels very justified because we've been going along with him and we've seen all the injustice and we're, like, on his side. So we're like, yes, that should happen. We should just, like, you know, erase all this and, like, uh, you know, we could, uh, start again from a clean slate. But on the other hand, you know, if you were to view that from somebody who had, like, imagine, like, something similar happened here. Like, imagine, like, a building burned down and um, I, I don't think there's, like, a... I don't know, maybe say City Hall, and there's, there's not that many. <laughs> oh, actually, a lot of the records um, that, uh, of our history were described in the um, Civil War. Mm. It's a start when Rory O'Connor was barricaded in the forecourts and they, they bombed it. Um, 
which might be the, the nearest equivalent. But it, yeah, it is kind of extra legal justice because you have a veterinary saying Dragon probably won't be able to get convicted because they don't really have any proof. Mm. Uh, so Vimes has done this to punish him. Yeah. And it feels very, it feels, um, yeah, really right and justified given what he, he done. But yeah, again, it is thing where you you sort of take yourself out of context and you imagine something like, um, like even, well, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a like, like someone say, like involved in any like a kind of banking corruption scandals. If they were found innocent or you know left off summers, you'd be outraged. But would you feel satisfied if you found, yeah, but someone ran around and burnt down their house? Yeah, later? it's like you know the judge may have given them a light sentence, but don't worry, like you know, so like someone. Yeah, I mean, uh, like if that happened. No, no, sorry, that's that's probably like it's not the best example because kind of Vimes is like burning down a sort of symbol of inequality and repression in Angkor because it's not like he's just mm. going around to Dragon's house and wrecking it up just for sheer vindictiveness uh, but the fact that like we hear Dragon scream the house down when he heard about it mm. like Vimes definitely got satisfaction knowing that your man that Dragon loves this heraldry and arist- aristocracy and all so much that he will be furious about mm. it being destroyed um yeah, like it would it would sit uneasy with you in real life, and I don't know it's, it's just kind of one of I suppose almost Pratchett's strengths as a writer that he can kind of make the plot and character plot hurtle on at such a pace and the characters be so engaging that you get this stuff that's thrown in, and you either don't really have the time or inclination to maybe think about it and pick it apart most of the well, I mean we're doing so now because we're doing this podcast but most of the time you don't because you're just so caught up in everything else that's going yeah. on you know it's, it's almost like a kind of like literary sleight of hand exactly yeah yeah I mean like and it's very easy to get caught up in this like emotional like wave and just like let it wash over you and that kind of thing but when you pull it apart and think of it logistically you know there are issues like because in some ways the way Vimes acts and the way veterinary permits him to act it's it's it almost seems like they're condoning vigilanteism which um you know it's it's very easy to like in this superhero obsessed world to be very you know oh but vigilantes are only going to be a good thing yeah but only when they're on your side you know like so what if like uh they start having vigilantes from like the other side and it's very easy again to just say well they're just criminals you know so it's 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 it kind of the gloss is over a lot of this and it's just he makes it very difficult to think about this stuff because you're just so invested in Vimes as a character but um, it's interesting that it's there you know it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting point of view and the fact that he keeps drawing attention to the fact that Ankh-Morpork as a town shouldn't and in a way doesn't really work but it kind of does I think that not justifies it, but it's certainly, you can allow it. You can allow it to be a thing. You know, these these flaws, you're like, well, that feeds into Angkor being a problematic city. Yeah, and, and in a way, it's, I mean, it's much more interesting to read about, like, Vimes and the watch in general trying to sort of, uh, like, re redistribute the scales of justice in such a way to compensate for the fact that they are, like, living in this very unequal unfair corrupt society and i mean they're technically like they're an arm of the Ankh-Morpork government they're you know they're they're the police force they're technically like uh responsible for for part of this so like they then are like 
dealing with that as people, as humans, dwarves, trolls, what you know, whatever, and tr- like trying to find out a, like a kind of a sort of uh, like a more satisfying sense of natural justice that falls in between like the the actual written law that's compromised by all of this uh, corruption and inequality and the uh, personal sense of you know um, vengeance or vindictiveness carrots personal is not the same as important it's like you mm. know like them trying to find some kind of middle way around this is probably more interesting to read than all of Ang Morfort just becoming a little more equal and better and them helping that along and yeah you know, yeah like that's dull of, as hell yeah yeah <laughs> well, like I mean, maybe someone could could write that, but I, I yeah, I feel it would be it would probably come across as a lot more didactic. Like it would be the kind of thing where even if I like agreed with his politics, I'd still be feel oh, this feels pretty on the nose. Whereas yeah, you probably wouldn't dedicate a podcast to it. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this this whole thing's a bit more bit more ambiguous and a bit more um, yeah, it allows for a lot more interesting character stuff. Yeah. So. Um, Will we get to rank it, this guy? Um, yeah, I don't think I have any more points. We talked about class, politics, transgender, life. Yeah, pretty much covered everything there. <laughs> yeah. All those things. So, yeah, sure, we might as well rank it. Um, so, we have our list here in front of us. So, 17... Oh, wait, actually, 18 books in total. Now, I forgot that last week we had a draw between Small Gods and Masquerade, which is at yeah. uh, position number four. At the top of our list, we have Lords and Ladies. And at the very bottom, we have Eric. Um, so, what do you think, Alan? Where do you think? Where would you place this? Um, okay, well, the immediate point of reference are the two previous Scarlet books. Yes, and, and this is better than either of them. Yes, and I was I'm, about to say. Yeah, was, if, if I kind of like uh, anti Cromwell rant that disguised anyone, uh, uh, please don't be in, uh, under any illusions. Uh, this is a wonderful book. This mm-hmm. is like a really... I mean, we, we didn't even get talking about the mystery. The mystery is great. The mystery... Actually, let's just take a second before we rate that because, my God, it's so good. Do you know what I absolutely love about that is the abs- the utter excitement that uh, Vimes has finding answers and the answers are wrong. Yeah, yeah. The fact that like he uh, Terry Pratchett sets up these ingenious solutions and they're not the right ones... And that's we, we fantastic. Keep getting foreshadowing about the wallpaper. So when they finally hit hit on the wallpaper, you think, yes, they've there got there. Oh go, yeah, and no, it's just never. Um, oh, it's sensational. Yeah, I I really like too that like Vimes's detective process feels really human and relatable. Where he's not one of these Eureka detectives where like he suddenly sees one thing and all mm. falls in place. That you see him kind of slog through different you know like the yeah, wrong guesses you see him like writing out this thing of you know trying to uh, solve it all that you know he's, they're 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 one of my favorite moments in any guys books when like vine sit down and says right i'm gonna solve the shit out of this case yeah <laughs> but like he isn't just a super detective who like gets this one moment of insight and that then that like sets everything else up it's like he has to kind of plod and Trudge his way to the to the finish line. That actually ties into like the everything that we were talking about before. This is like that he is he's he's a problematic, flawed character. Like he doesn't solve this that like you know the way that like Batman would solve it. Like you know he solves it like you know by going through all the wrong answers until he gets to the right one, which is great. Oh, I love it. And the ultimate realization it actually does feel very satisfying. The best part I think is when not just when he solves the case. 
but when he proves it, you know, when, or when he knows that it's true, because he guesses beforehand, and he's fair, like 99% certain, but when he asks um, the maid, he says, you didn't take anything else? No, no. You mean the candle, sir? And then he just said, he can, I think he says, oh, Vimes looked up the roof, and he just sighed happily. Mm. Yes, the candles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's an excellent moment. But anyway, um, yes, there's, I don't think there's anything that I would change about that because I love the entire thing. I love the fact that he brings in Donut Jimmy, the horse doctor, yeah, as well, yeah. because he doesn't trust any doctors in the city and he like, knows. You know, it's just such an like, obvious joke, but all of a sudden just talking about veterinary like he's a horse. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so funny. I think it's the fact that it's two incredibly contrasting characters because there's very. You can't think of any situation where veterinary and Donut Jimmy would be in the same room yeah. anyway, but this kind of forces it to happen and it's like. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> but anyway, yes, okay, so little uh, tangent of affection over. Um, yeah, I would definitely rank it above Guards Guards. That's my point of reference, which incidentally we have as number three. I think I'd rank it above Pyramids as well, to be honest. Um, Lords and Ladies, it's it's tricky. It's going to be Pyramids stuff for me. I really like Pyramids. Now, I, I think this beats Pyramids on emotion. Um, mm. like it's uh, it um, to, as I said like words and heart cannot be taken um, yes tear to my eye and then there's just so many like lovely little uh, you know character almost with, with Cheery and with Vimes and with like Angua kind of like sort of giving in at the end it's like oh like okay I'm going to mm. stay for a bit longer because she likes Carrot so much in spite of how maddeningly uh, um Cheery, or maddeningly, I don't know, what would you put it, um, maddeningly perfect he can be. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and I mean it's got it's got a bigger cast of characters than pyramids. Although, like, I'm kind of weighing against that the fact that like it's also a two books to establish a lot of those um, mm. characters. The pyramids doesn't. Um, if I had any issue with this book at all, I think is that even though we talked about this before and feel it's justified it does somewhat irritate me that there's a little bit of sequel bait at the end of it like even though i do feel it's justified and like i do think that yes you can tell this is going to be elaborated on further it is something that leaves me wanting more which is a plus and a negative at the same time like i mean it is better to want more than to you know not want to read something at all yeah. you know so that's a plus in itself I would, I personally, I would definitely rank it above pyramids. For me, it's kind of deciding whether it tops lords and ladies is the problem. I don't think it tops lords and ladies because I think I think they both are something similar in like um, mm. they build on the books that have come before them in that subseries really well. And that actually, it's weird that that actually comes to a very organic climax and then somehow manages to build up almost a new, like a rebooted uh, trilogy after that, which is yeah. great. Whereas this one, I think it's still in the middle. And you're always going to have a tricky time when you're still in the middle of building your world. So, yeah, I think I'd agree with you there. Yeah, I, I think I think Lords and Ladies just seems more, I know, it's more uh, climactic. It's, a very, um, it's, it's also one of the few books on this list that you can very satisfyingly read on its own, I think. Like, even, like, if you haven't read like, yeah. the books that come before, it's like, whereas Feet of Clay, I do think you need the context of the previous books to kind of get. Um... My, I put it at number two. That's my final thing. Okay. What, what, what puts it above pyramids for you? 
Well, <laughs> now the thing is, uh, Pyramids, I enjoyed, and now bear in mind, I didn't read that when yourself and yeah. Rose read it, but it's kind of a similar thing with Small Gods, it's just the story of it didn't resonate with me as much. I probably wouldn't rank Pyramids as high as number two on yeah, that list. Funny how, uh, funny how all the ones in like the kind of Asian and African style countries don't really resonate with you. And well, I'm not Asian, or... <laughs> you, just, you just don't like them. Just don't like how people do things. Jelly well, they're, just, they're not the right sort. It's <laughs> not your sort. Yeah, yeah, that clearly yeah. must be it. Yes, yeah. so I'm a massive racist. Dragon King of Arms. Um, <laughs> yeah. So now don't get me wrong. I do still really, really like pyramids. Um, I think like this, the imagery that it conjures up is fantastic, and the story it tells is very concise and well told. Um, I just think that there's, I think it's the themes that are in this. They're just they're much more rich, and it juggles them so well. It like I mean, pyramids has a very concise, straightforward story which it tells beautifully. This one is more ambitious. And I think it still manages to pull it off exceptionally well. Like, not perfectly, but exceptionally well. And I think I tend to give it a bit more credence for doing that, as opposed to, like, you know, reaching a little bit lower but and doing it exceptionally well. Yeah, I think you've sold me on the, the amount it, it does. Like, um, it, do, it, it does, it takes on a lot more than the Pyramid Solonian's Castle character, but then a lot of different ideas it's it's juggling around with um and does them pretty well so yeah on what said i'm I'm happy to put it above pyramids but below lords and ladies at number number two yeah so i think we'd be that's probably like the least we've ever had to argue on any <laughs> of these now we're gonna be we're in big trouble oh, when we yeah. get to like snuff well not snuff but uh i don't know what would be like the night watch will probably be the one we'll have the biggest argument over. I'd say, yeah, well, no, unless it's immediately number one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very it's, it's very hard to predict from the outside going in because I'm sure you've found the same where you you go into them and feel very differently about the books mm. um, than you might have before because you've never thought of them. Of, of yeah, like moving pictures is not you've probably never read them in order either. I know I hadn't. Like, yeah. So. Moving Picture is the one that surprised me the most because I remember thinking it was a good, serviceable book, and then I came out of it and thinking, "Wow, there's so much at work here. Yeah. It's incredible." But yeah, I'm quite happy with that. Then I, I'm very satisfied that like Lords and Ladies and Peter Clare at top. Um, yeah, I think we're making a good list. Yeah, yeah, this is indeed a, a very good list. Okay, um, so our new number two then after Lords and Ladies is Feet, Feet of Clay. Clay. So Happy yeah, we will we'll be back with uh, with Hogfather where we'll have uh, we'll. Hopefully, have hopefully it before Hogswatch night. Won't oh, we? Yeah, before Hogswatch night. Um, we'll see how we go, and uh, hopefully we'll have we'll have Rose back where she's also going to solve our, uh, our um, small gods yeah, masquerade small gods debate. Masquerade, uh, small gods masquerade gate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and uh, talk about Hogfather. So that should be a lot of fun. So um, in the meantime, you can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Podcast Addict, on a range of streaming services. If you'd like to listen to us um, on, you can find us at Radio Moorpork on Facebook and uh, Twitter. If you want to get in touch with us, we're also on uh, hanging around the uh, Discworld subreddit. Um, that's our slash Discworld. Uh, getting to some interesting conversations on Twitter and Reddit lately. So if you want to join us and talk to us that are offer feedback on the podcast or just talk Discworld general, we'd be we'd be very happy to hear it. If you want to get in touch. Um, with anything in real detail, you can email us at radiomorepark at gmail.com. Um, and if you could, if you feel up to it, um, 
uh, spread the word, leave us a rating or review on whatever streaming service you use. That will be a, a huge help to uh, to get us out to more listeners. But um, that um, being said, that is it for this week. Thank you all. Uh, thank you very much, and good night.